Some people put in full day's work, got a lot done. It was, it was very, um, very helpful. Things are really starting to come along. Uh, we're excited, so, so thank you for all your help. Um, as VJ mentioned, um, come out tonight at 6 o'clock. We're going to be looking at not just kind of the, what Scripture is in general. We're going to discuss the, the canon of Scripture. Okay? What that means is the specific 66 books that we have in the Bible and why we have them. Listen, our, our uh, Catholic friends... They have a different Bible than us. They have, they have more books than the 66. All right, so we're going to discuss why. What's the difference? Why these 66 books here? Why more books over here? How do you know what God's Word is? How did we get the Bible that we have? So this is really important stuff, right? If we claim that this is God's Word, we, we need to know why. We need to know how we know. And we need to know which books are God's Word. So that's what we're going to discuss tonight. It'll be, it'll be really interesting, I, I think. Um, so, so come check it out at, at 6 o'clock. Um, we're finally going to finish the first chapter of Mark this week. All right, Five weeks it took us, but I'm excited. We're there. We've got a long passage um, this morning, um, so we've got to really kind of jump right in. don't have a lot of time for introduction or, or formalities. Um, we've been looking at the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus Christ. We're, we're exploring who Jesus is. So today we're going to be in Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 45. Things are really starting to heat up now. All right? This is kind of the, the first day of Jesus' public ministry. And there were three things that primarily distinguished Jesus' public ministry for those three years. Teaching, casting out demons, and healing. All right, we've got all three of those in our passage today. So we're going to look at the authority of Jesus and then how that is demonstrated to us in those three things. So just this little passage is kind of a, a good little summary of Jesus' entire public ministry. So we're in Mark 1, 21 through 45. You can find it printed inside your bulletin. Um, notice also in, in your notes there, in the third category down, you made a bit of a typo. It says, um, the authority of Jesus in casting our demons. That's not what it's supposed to say. Uh, Jesus is not like the demon casting director. That doesn't make any sense. I don't know what that means, but it's bad theology, I'm sure. It's supposed to say, Jesus' authority in casting out demons. So, so make that little correction in your notes. Not casting our demons, casting out demons. Sorry about that. Um, so Mark 1, 21 through 45. Um, I'm going to read the whole thing. It's a long passage, but it's really important. Uh, this, is, this is God's word. Mark 1, 21 through 45. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and, and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve him. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. 
And he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went through all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and, and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him, and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean again. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every corner. Let's start. Father, thank you this time, thank you this opportunity to, to study your word. Uh, we got a long passage, Father. I pray that you would focus our minds for these next few minutes. Father, teach us um, what you want us to learn um, about your Son, about Jesus Christ. But Father, more importantly, transform us, change our hearts. Father, give us a love and a passion and a desire to know Christ better. So, Father, I pray that this time would be about you, and you would be the focus, and you would be glorified. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever heard one of those sermons that was just, you know, it's just like this completely different level of a sermon? You know, one of those sermons where the Spirit of God is, is clearly working. Everyone is just kind of hanging on every word of the preacher, and the people are kind of just glued into their seats, right? All right, this is not one of those sermons. I've never preached one of those sermons, but, but it happens sometimes. And, and I heard a story about a pastor a number of years ago, a Baptist pastor, who was preaching one of these sermons, and then about two-thirds of the way through the sermon, all the lights went out, just complete darkness. Why? Because the lights were on this motion sensor timer, right? And people had been so caught up in the sermon that they hadn't even moved. And the lights just went out. He continued, he preached through the darkness, and he said, let's pray. Everyone bowed their heads, and the lights came back on, right? That's a sermon. Like that's, that's something real, and it's got people's attention, right? That's what is happening right here in this story with Jesus. He shows up, and he starts teaching, and the people are just absolutely blown away. They were astonished by this new teaching. Why? Because it had authority. And the word astonished there that describes the people, it doesn't quite do the, the Greek justice. It has a, an idea, a sense of fear. Right? They were so amazed, they were so astonished by this new teaching that they were afraid. Right? They, were, they were amazed, they were terrified by this great new authority. And notice, we're not, we're not told anything about the content of the preaching, are we? We're not told what Jesus said. Remember, Mark, the whole book of Mark is much more concerned with the person of Jesus than with the teaching of Jesus. Mark is more concerned or focused on the actions of Jesus. It's, it's what Jesus does in Mark that, that demonstrates who he is. And here we are introduced to one of the most important and unique things about Jesus. His authority. This was something that people had never experienced before. You see, the people were used to listening to the scribes, right? They're, they're in a synagogue. It's not the temple. A synagogue was kind of like a church building today. It was where the people would come together to gather for, for fellowship and to be taught kind of the, the Hebrew scriptures. And it wasn't like churches today where there was generally one guy up here who would pretty much teach most of the time every week. No, they had these 
traveling scribes and rabbis that would go around from, from town to town and teach in the different little synagogues. And these guys, these guys were no scrubs, right? These guys were like, these were real deal. These were the guys. These were the brightest of the bright. They were the, the PhDs in scripture. And people highly valued them. They, they highly respected their opinion. Everyone wanted to know what the scribes had to say. And these guys, I'm serious, they knew their stuff, okay? We, we kind of sometimes minimize the scribes. Oh, they're, they're terrible people. They got something wrong. But these guys were shook. They really knew the word. But what they would do when they taught, they would cite all of these other famous scribes and other Pharisees kind of from the past as their authority. They'd be like, well, you know, we know this important guy said this and this and this. Therefore, we know this. Right? It would be like a research paper that you write in school. Right? When I was in seminary, I would write these papers. It was personally my work. I would write the paper. But in a 30-page paper, I would have like dozens and dozens of different sources. I would have upwards of 100 different footnotes in these papers. So, so what am I doing in these papers? I'm not writing based on my own authority. I wasn't coming up with a bunch of brilliant new ideas. I was taking and condensing and analyzing the thought of others. Right? You see, my authority in that paper came from them. All right? We can know this because this guy said this, and you know, then I'd quote him. It was never, you know, we can know this because Matthew Shore says this. No, that's, that's not what a research paper is, right? It was taking and using other people's work and convincing. I had no personal authority. My authority came from the people that I was sourcing and inciting. That's what the scribes and the rabbis were like. They were always quoting these other guys. Well, we know this really famous rabbi said this, so we know that that was true. And the people were very used to that. Then all of a sudden, along comes Jesus, and it's completely different. All right? His teaching was like nothing that they had ever heard before. When Jesus wrote research papers, all right, he didn't cite anybody, he didn't use any footnotes, um, he didn't use any other people's arguments, Jesus said, well, this is so because I said it. That's it. And the people are absolutely floored. What is this new teaching? He, he teaches as one with, with authority. What is authority? In, in English, authority just kind of means to, to possess the power or, or to possess the right to do something. Right? The, the president possesses the right to, to lead in the government to govern this country. Not because of his person or who he is, but because of his office. Right? His office comes with the authority to rule and to govern. In Greek, however, that word authority, it's a much more fascinating word. It's exousia. Right? Let me explain it. It's two parts. Ex, you know, a prefix, just comes before word. Ex just means out of or, or from. But then usia, it's more complicated. It's it's a form of the verb to be, right? You know what the verb to be means? Like, if I was to say, Elaine is nice, right? That is, that is is the word to be. It, it describes what she is. It describes what she is like, right? That is the form of the word to be, right? It describes her very being. She is nice. So, usia means being. Right? And in church history, this is a very important word. As Christians were fighting to defend the Bible, and they were fighting to defend the divinity of Jesus, they used this word. And they said the usia. Jesus is the same usia as God the Father. Right? They're both God. They are both equal parts of the Trinity. So this word just means substance or being. It means kind of what you are down to your very core or nature. So Jesus' teaching was exousia. It came out of his own being, his own person, who he was. 
These are the words of the one who is of the same essence and the same substance of God the Father. Jesus' authority is rooted in who he is. It's rooted in his own being as God. Right? So this is God speaking. And that's why the people were astonished. That's why they were terrified. Now, there hadn't been a prophet in over 400 years in Israel. So the people hadn't been hearing the word of the Lord. But here, all of a sudden, someone shows up who claims to not only be a prophet and to speak for God, but to speak as God. Right? I've mentioned before that I had this famous professor back in college. He always made the argument that, that Jesus in Mark wasn't God, that Mark never claimed that he was God, and that Jesus himself never claimed that he was God. But here again, we see that this professor wasn't really paying attention because this is about the fourth time in just the first chapter where it's very clear that Jesus is claiming to be God. His authority comes from the fact that he is God. In this little synagogue in, in Podunk, or backwoods Capernaum, God himself, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, almighty creator and sustainer of the universe, speaks. And the people were dumbfounded. Never before had they heard anything like this. This was authority. This was God himself speaking. And, and we have those words. Right? We have the teaching recorded and preserved for us in the Bible. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16 that, that the words that you hold in your Bible are breathed out. They are inspired by God. And our response to this word that we all possess must be the same as these people's response to Jesus. You're never going to hear anything like God's Word anywhere else. It is alive. It has power. It can cut you to the core. It has authority because it is rooted in the person of God Himself. Let's move on. We're going to be talking about the healing and the casting out of demons that Jesus did. And these miraculous things were very important parts of Jesus' ministry. But look ahead down at verse 38. Um, the disciples, they, they come to him and they're kind of, you know, like, oh, you know, we got we got all these people to heal. What, what are you doing? And what does Jesus say to him in 38? He says, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. So the miraculous stuff coming up that we're going to talk about, it, it's important. But it could only be understood and rightly interpreted, interpreted according to the teaching. All right, the teaching ministry explained the purpose of the healing ministry. You can't understand the purpose of the healing without also understanding the teaching. Jesus didn't come. He didn't show up just to heal some diseases and make a couple people feel a little bit better. If he did, he could have healed a whole lot more people than he did. There were many more people alive at that time that Jesus didn't heal than he did. He never wanted people to be drawn to him just for what they could get from him. You see Jesus, as, as we read this gospel, you're going to see him always, often, he's often withdrawing from the crowd. You often see Jesus kind of escaping or, or getting away from all these people that, that needed his help. Because the miracles weren't the point. Right? The miracles served to assert and confirm this unprecedented authority of Jesus. Right? So the teaching was the focus. The, the person was the focus. The healings and, and the casting out of the demons, they, they served those purposes. They, they weren't ends in themselves. But with that said, that, that doesn't mean that they weren't important. So, so let's first look at the casting out of the demon in verses 22 through 27. 
Jesus is teaching, right? And immediately, there's that word again. We got it five times in just this short passage. Paul is moving. Boom, boom, boom. Action. Immediately, a man with an unclean spirit shows up and challenges Jesus saying, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And this was a regular part of Jesus' ministry. You'll see down in verse 34, we're told that he, he cast out many demons. He was constantly doing this. And we talked two weeks ago about why it was reasonable to believe in, in spiritually evil beings like Satan or demons. Listen, this is the part where we lose a lot of people. We're like, all right, now I know you're crazy. You believe in demons. All right, but we made the case that since most people grant that it's at least possible that a spiritually good being like God exists, right? Most people are like, okay, I, you know, I can see the possibility of that. Then it also makes sense right, that it's possible that, that spiritually evil beings like demons and Satan exist. So we're not going to kind of go over that argument in extens- um, a lot, but, but I want to at least note that if you look back at the Old Testament, there's hardly any mention of demons in the entire Old Testament. All right? and, and possession by these spiritual beings is extremely rare. And it's the same way if you go after the New Testament and look at the early church and early church history, it's never mentioned. Never are demons talked about. Demon possession is hardly ever mentioned. And so it seems that there is this particularly strong and sudden outburst of demonic activity specifically because of the arrival of Jesus Christ. Right? Satan was no dummy. Satan understood the stakes. The battle would be won or lost right here. So he unleashes everything that he's got. And here we have Jesus' first encounter with one of these beings. And I'll ruin the end for you. It's going to be a a pretty one-sided affair. And, And notice what the demon says. This is really interesting. The demon says there, he says, I know you. I know you, the Holy One of God. We talked about this briefly last week. The the verse that terrified me for much of my young life was James 2.19. This verse absolutely plagued me for many years. And in that verse, James says that even the demons know God. Even the demons believe in God. And and that's why this easy believism garbage we've developed in, in much of Christianity, you know, just believe in Jesus, just pray this magic little prayer, is dangerous and unbiblical. We are never told in Scripture to just believe. We are never told to just pray a prayer. Right? We're told that there must be repentance. We're also never told that faith is just intellectually believing some facts about Jesus. Listen, you're not saved by just believing that Jesus existed. You're not even saved by just believing that Jesus was God or that He died and, and rose from the dead in the place of sinners. The demons believed all of that. They knew him. They knew Jesus. So so congratulations, right? You're now on the same level belief-wise with the demons. Biblical belief, we're told, biblical faith required not just intellectually agreeing to some facts about Jesus. It is a change of heart. It is not just believing facts about Jesus, but then trusting in and resting in Jesus as your only hope of salvation. Remember our acronym from last week. We talked about um, what biblical faith was. You could know it in three letters. K-A-T. Cat. Remember, biblical faith is knowledge, it is assent, and it is trust. You have to know something about Jesus. That's the knowledge. 
You have to agree with that something. You have to believe that it was true. That's the ascent. And then there's the team. You have to trust in it, right? You have to rest in what Jesus has done and what he has done for you. The trust. There are a lot of people out there who believe the right things about Jesus, but who are not trusting in Jesus. And Paul tells us, he says, examine your hearts. He says, make sure you're not one of them. Even the demons knew the right things about Jesus. The demon knows Jesus. So there can be no question then that there is something more to biblical faith than just knowledge about Jesus. And there is. It's, it's the trust. Right? It's, it's the step of action that we take in, in trusting in that knowledge and in that truth. You can't just know about Jesus. You have to trust in Jesus. And Mark, he's doing something interesting in, in these first, in the kind of the first half of his book. We're going to see a number of instances coming up, like five or six times, where Jesus' identity is constantly being questioned by people. Right? They're always like, hey, who is this Jesus? Yeah, we can't figure this guy out. Where did he come from? Like, who is this guy? You know, people just can't figure it out. But it is ironically from the demonic side of things that we keep getting the answer in the first half of Mark. It happens four or five times. The people are still trying to figure out who Jesus is. The demons know exactly who Jesus is and exactly what he has come to do. So then why does Jesus rebuke the demon here? Have you ever wondered this? Why does Jesus tell the demon to be silent? Look down at 34 also. We're told that Jesus did not permit any of the demons to speak. Why? Because they knew who he was. Why not? What's going on here? Have you ever, have you ever wondered about this? You know, uh, Jesus, what are you doing? Um, you know, kind of let the demons you know, talk about you so people can know kind of who you are. You know, just let everybody talk about it. Why? What's going on? Secrecy, if you read through the book of Mark, is an extremely important theme in this entire book. We see it about nine or ten times. Jesus will speak to demons and to his followers and the people is healed. And he would say, say nothing about what has happened. You are not to speak about what I have done for you. I need you to be quiet and silent. Why? I think for three reasons. First, it was to protect himself from false messianic expectations. Remember, we talked about how the Israel right now, at that time, was under the oppressive rule of the Roman Empire. Right? And all these people believed that the Messiah was coming, but their picture of the Messiah was this big, strong, conquering warrior that was going to come in and wipe out the Romans and, and kill all of them and establish this great, strong, mighty empire in Jerusalem. Right? They had misunderstood the Old Testament scriptures and, and how it described the Messiah. So Jesus is trying to avoid these false messianic expectations. Second, he, he, he commanded secrecy at this time because Jesus knew that real biblical faith could not be coerced. All right, he knew that real biblical faith would not result from just seeing a bunch of cool miracles. All right, that wasn't the point of the miracles. Jesus was never about doing magic tricks and saying, look what I can do. Believe in me. No. Remember, the miracles served a secondary role. They, they confirmed the teaching. They confirmed the message. They, they pointed to the person. They demonstrated and proved the authority that Jesus claimed to possess. But it was never just about the miracles. It was about the person. All right? It's about Jesus. Salvation comes through an experience of Jesus himself. 
not seeing him do some cool miracles. And so Jesus is, is often pulling back from the crowds. He, he's often escaping from them. And he's saying, listen, it's not about the miracles. Don't focus on the miracles. Focus on me. Right? It's about me. Right, and finally, third, I think the most important reason um, that Jesus commanded secrecy um, at this time was because he knew that it was not until the cross that Jesus could rightly be known for who he was and what he had come to do. Right? Take the disciples, for example. These guys lived with Jesus for three years, nonstop. And they were taught by Jesus, nonstop. Jesus was constantly teaching them that, guys, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to, I'm going to be arrested, I'm, I'm going to be crucified, all right? But then I'll come back from the dead, I promise. But what happens when Jesus is actually arrested? Panic, right? They all freaked out. They had no idea what was going on, and they all abandoned their Savior. They all abandoned Jesus because they didn't understand. Jesus commands silence because at this time, people don't understand who he is. He commands silence because he doesn't want to just be known as some good moral teacher. He doesn't want to just be known as some guy who can do these pretty cool miracles. Because he is so much more than that. It is only at the cross that we can fully understand who Jesus is, the, the Savior, the, the Messiah, the, the suffering servant. God himself come to take the place of his people, to live in their place, to suffer in their place, and to die in their place because of their sin. The cross is where the true identity of Jesus finally shines forth. It is the place where we perfectly see God's love and mercy and grace at the same time as we see his justice. All right? Those two things meet brilliantly at the cross. We cannot fully understand Jesus until we understand the cross. We cannot fully understand Jesus until we understand the gospel, the, the good news of what Jesus Christ has done. And that's why Jesus commands silence. It, it relates to what we've touched on these, these last couple of weeks. You know, we talked about it. It's, it's cool again to like Jesus these days, right? There's all these studies out there. They do all these polls. And everyone's like, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm kind of down with some of this Jesus stuff. People love the, they love the, the turn the other cheek, right? They love the love your neighbor as yourself. They love the healing and, and his care for the down and out. And if that's all that it was about, Jesus would have let everyone run around and, and talk about him. But that's not what it's all about. Jesus commands silence because he will not tolerate cheap, easy belief. He will not tolerate half belief. Jesus doesn't care if you like his teaching and the nice things that he does. All, right? all of those things make sense only in light of the cross. It's, it's all or nothing with Jesus. All right? he, he doesn't allow us to like certain parts of him and, and kind of ignore the stuff we're a little bit uncomfortable with. He says, you don't know me unless you know me at the cross. Right? You don't know me unless you know me as God himself taking on human flesh to come and die for sinners. Listen, either Jesus is who he said he was, or he was an absolute lunatic and one of the most evil persons to have ever lived because he claimed to be God. Right? He claimed that he was your only hope of salvation. He claimed that he was your only hope of fulfillment, of happiness, and of meaning. And Jesus demands, his authority demands that you pick a side. Right? There's, there's no neutral 
position when it comes to Jesus. Listen, he, he's either who he said he was, and you have to adore him for it, or he was a liar or a crazy person, and you have to abhor him for it. All right, it's adore or abhor. Those are the only two reasonable options when it comes to Jesus. You got to pick a side. Look at the authority that this man commanded. And it is because of that authority, it is because his authority derives from his own person as, as God, that he can teach as he does, and that he can cast out this, this powerful, evil spirit. And, and notice, by the way, there's, there's no contest here, right? It's not like Jesus and the guy get in this wrestling match, and like, oh, you know, I've got you know, to cast out this demon. No, Jesus speaks, and it happens. Right? Jesus commands it, and it's done. That is authority. And Jesus did this who knows how many times with, with nothing but a word. He has complete power and authority over the spiritual world. And he demonstrates it here. We don't need to live our lives in, in fear of Satan and demons. They have already been defeated. The battle is won. The outcome is secure because of the authority of Jesus. And finally this morning... Jesus demonstrates his great authority to us in his ability to heal. We've got a number of different healings just in this one passage. Um, he heals Peter's mother-in-law. And in verse 34, we're told that he healed many people with various diseases. And then starting in verse 40, we're told of Jesus' healing of a leper. This is one of my favorite stories. Remember, healing was a very important part of Jesus' ministry. But, but also remember, I, I want to emphasize this. That it wasn't the main point. Right? Jesus could have healed everyone if he wanted to. But we know that he didn't. And we also know that though Jesus is the great healer, nowhere in the Bible are we guaranteed physical healing if we just have enough faith. Or if we just pray hard enough. Just go look at Paul in 2 Corinthians um, chapter 12. Right? This is Paul, the apostle. Right? This isn't some random guy. This is the greatest missionary, the greatest theologian to ever live besides Jesus. And he is begging God. He is coming to God on his knees, begging him to pray, to heal him multiple times. And every time God says no. And then listen to Paul's words in, in 12 verses 9 and 10. <clears throat> but God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's, it's pretty clear from Scripture that sometimes God very intentionally does not heal us. Right? But there is always... A reason, and we must strive to make Paul's response here our own. All right, our lives are not primarily about what we can get and, and how good we can feel. Our lives are to be primarily about God, and sometimes it takes some extreme circumstances to remind us of that. So, so we're going to be looking at, at the healing aspect of Jesus's ministry, and it's important. It's it's beautiful. But I don't want you hear me, to hear me saying to you that, that Jesus is going to heal you. And, and I want you to be careful. I need to be careful here. Uh, you know, sometimes people get fussy about this. But I want you to be careful with what you're listening to out there. Right, if you're listening to some guy on TV or some guy on the internet that is promising you that Jesus wants to heal you if, you, if you just have enough faith, if you just send enough money into this phone number, Jesus is, is going to heal you. 
Listen, that's garbage, all right? That is not biblical. You can find that nowhere in the Bible. It is dangerous. It's just not there. We are never promised healing in this life. We are never promised great riches in this life. We are never promised an easy life. But we are promised relationship with Jesus Christ and reconciliation to God. And, and that's the point. And that's so much better than any physical healing or a little bit of money for a few years. All right? It, the miracles aren't an end in themselves. They were meant to confirm. They're meant to point us forward to Jesus. Right? It's about Jesus. It's not about the healings. So, so jump back to verse 40 in Mark, and let's look at the first healing um, of the leper. Look there at verse 40. Now, lepers, lepers were the lowest of the low, of the outcasts in Israel at this time. We don't even have a category of people today that, that we can compare and, and really understand what the lepers had it like. All right, imagine if someone caught like the Ebola virus, or someone had this like terribly infectious outbreak of disease, and this person had it. You know, how would we treat that person, right? We'd stay away from me. Um, don't come near me. I, you know, I don't want to catch your disease, right? That's how the lepers were treated back then. The, the ancient historian Josephus, he, he lived, you know, around the time of Jesus, and he wrote that, that lepers were treated no differently than a corpse, and then a couple, you know, a couple centuries later, in rabbinic tradition, we're told that, that lepers were referred to as, as the living dead. Right? So the lepers back then are basically zombies. Right? Zombies are, are big now. Um, people were treating lepers as if they would be treating zombies today. Let me read verses 40 and 41. But remember, we've got to remember what these lepers were like as, as we read these two verses. Verse 40 and 41. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. All right. Don't just skim over this. Don't, don't pass over this quickly. Like, you, you know, you're reading right before bed, and you've got to read quickly so you can go to sleep. All right, this is, this is huge. All right, don't miss what is happening here. He stretched out his hand, and he touched him. Right, this is mind-blowing in their context. You don't touch lepers, right? especially at that time and especially in that culture. No one would dare even dream of getting close to a leper, much less touching a leper. To, to help a leper, to feed a leper, to come in contact with a leper was to become unclean or defiled. Right? Lepers were ceremonially unclean. So to touch one was to take on their uncleanness. Their uncleanness was transferred to you by the touch. And so the Jews did everything they could to avoid contact with the lepers. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan, right? The guy's laying in the ditch. He's basically a corpse, which we're told is the same thing as a leper to these people. And what do the guys do, right? They, they cross over to the other side of the street and they get around the guy. They want nothing to do with these unclean people. Right? But without hesitation... Right? One of the most beautiful moments in Scripture, I think. Without hesitation, Jesus reaches out his hand to this man and he physically touches him. And this may have been the first time and who knows how many years that this man experienced personal, physical contact. Right? Even apart from the healing that was about to come, this touch would have meant so much to this man. Just the touch of Jesus here speaks volumes. And this exchange between Jesus and the leper, right? This is a perfect 
beautiful little picture of the gospel. Remember, you touch a leper, you become unclean. Jesus was willing to be unclean so that this man could be healed. Jesus was willing to be defiled so that the leper could be pure. Jesus is willing to take on the leper's disease on himself and give the leper his health. That's the gospel. Alright? Galatians 3.13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. We're the curse. Christ takes that curse on himself. And that's what Jesus is doing for this leper. And that's what he is willing to do for all who repent and believe. Listen, Jesus doesn't just come and step back and say, eh, you're here. Like from a distance. Kind of like without coming in contact with us, just kind of like healing us from a distance. No, Jesus personally takes on our sin. He takes on our sickness and our infirmity and he bears it for us. This is, remember, this is the great exchange. Listen, he gets our disease, we get his health. He gets our sin, we get his righteousness. He gets our death, we get his life. That's the gospel. And you will find nothing else like it anywhere else. This is the great story around which every other story depends. It's all about the gospel. It's about what Jesus has done for us on the cross in coming, living, dying, and resurrecting in our place. It's the good news of what Jesus has done for you. Remember the key word, substitution, right? That's the gospel. Look at verse 45. One more thing about this. Remember, we've got the secrecy motif, right? Jesus, he heals this leper and he tells him, don't say anything, please don't go out and say anything. What does the leper do? Immediately, he runs out and tells everyone. He's ecstatic. He's, he's out and about now. He, he's back. He's part of the in crowd. He, he's in society for the first time in who knows how long. But look at Jesus. We're told that, that Jesus can no longer openly enter towns. Jesus is now out in the desolate places. Right? At the beginning of the story, Jesus is on the inside. And the leper is on the outside. At the end of the story, Jesus is on the outside. And the leper is now on the inside. Jesus has completely traded places with the leper. That's the gospel, and that's what he offers to do for us. Right, hop back up to, up to 30 and 31. We'll briefly look at one more healing as we draw to a close. So in the healing of the leper, we see the gospel very clearly, what Jesus has done for us. And in the healing of Peter's mother-in-law here, that, that's there too, but I want to focus on her response to that healing as a pattern for what our response must be as well. It's there at the end of verse 31. Jesus comes to her, he heals her, right? She didn't go to him, right? Jesus takes all the initiative, he does all the work. But then what does she do, right? She responds in service. She gets up right away and starts serving him, right? What Jesus has done in healing her, that's the gospel. And in her response in serving him, that's the response that we're called to have to what Jesus has done for us. Don't confuse the two, right? Don't get the order wrong. The gospel is not what you do. The gospel is what Christ has done for you. And then we are called to respond. And she gets up right away and serves in grateful service to the one who had healed her. Jesus heals her. He does the work. 
But, but what is her response? She doesn't just run off and be like, thanks Jesus, and then goes off and does whatever it is that she wants. No, she is so thankful that, that, that there's nothing she would rather do than serve her Savior. Christ is the great healer, right? But the greatest healing, people say, oh, we, we've forgotten the miraculous. You know, the miraculous doesn't happen today. Oh man, we wish there'd be some miracles. Listen, the bringing back to life of a dead heart is the most miraculous thing that happens. And that is an absolute miracle. That a dead, sinful, wicked heart like my own can be brought back to life by the grace of God. That is nothing if it is not a miracle. And this lady's response to that miracle done for her is the only response to Jesus that really makes any sense. And it must be our response as well. And this, this ties into what we talked about last week. Have you been spiritually healed by the grace of of Jesus Christ. Okay? How have you responded to that healing? Has it been in humble service to the one who healed you and saved you? No other response makes any sense. I recently read the book. Um, it's by Daniel Defoe. It's a classic. It's called Robinson Crusoe. Everyone should read it. It's a fantastic book. It's an extremely Christian book. All right? Crusoe, he's, he's stranded on an island by himself. All right, and all he has is the Bible, and God spiritually saves Crusoe just through the reading of the Word. All right, and there's a lot of really good theology in the book, so I, I'd recommend that, that you read it. But in the story, he's shipwrecked on this island in the Caribbean. All right, he's all by himself. No one else lives there. And for 24 years, he lives without any human contact whatsoever. But later on, kind of towards the end of that, he discovers that there's this, this group of cannibals that occasionally will sail over or row over kind of from a neighboring island. And every time there's a battle, they, these guys capture their enemies and they sail over to Crusoe's island and they have this gruesome, terrifying ritual where they, where they murder the person and they eat the person, right? They eat their captured enemies. One day, Crusoe stumbles into one of these um, ceremonies from a distance and he can see what's happening. And they've got the one victim, he, he's tied up, and he sees the guy... He, he kind of he manages to get up off the ground and he sees the guy make a break for it. That guy's trying to get away. He's trying to save himself. But the guy clearly has no hope whatsoever. He's got, I think, four pursuers after him. They're unbound. They've got weapons. Um, he's doomed. He has no hope whatsoever of salvation in himself. Right? But Crusoe steps in and intervenes and then he kills the four pursuers and he saves the man's life. What happens next? The man, his name, he gets named Friday, right? This is common. You'll, you'll hear the term, my man Friday, or, or your gal Friday. That, that comes from this book. But the man is saved, and Friday, what is, he doesn't say, oh, you know, I believe in you, Crusoe. Thank you for saving me, and then run off and, and go do whatever it is that he wants, right? No, Friday throws himself at Crusoe's feet, and he pledges his entire life to his service. He is so grateful for being healed. He is so grateful for being spared that he devotes his life to following and serving the man who saved him. And, and a friendship develops between the two. Um, Crusoe teaches Friday English. He, he teaches in the Bible. And, and God eventually spiritually saves Friday as well. And even a few years later, finally, when, when Crusoe has the chance, he's been waiting for 28 years to get off this island and go back to England, Friday still leaves everything he has ever known behind and, and goes with him to this strange new world. He is so grateful for his life. He is so grateful for his salvation. And he has devoted his entire life 
to the service of His Savior. How can we do any less? Listen, we have been saved from a fate much worse than being eaten alive by cannibals. Alright? We have been saved from an eternity separated from God and all that is good and all that is right for all of eternity. What is wrong with us that we don't desire to serve our great Savior? What is wrong with me, right? How can I still sin and, and grumble and, and complain and be unsatisfied with, with certain aspects of my life? Honestly, from an eternal perspective, who cares, right? Listen, our one real problem is that we have been separated from God by our sin, all right? That's really all that matters. If, if Christ is taking care of that problem, nothing else really matters, all right? Your eternity is secure. So we must be able to say, along with Paul in, in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, that any struggles, any difficulties that I face are truly light and momentary, and that they are helping to prepare me for an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. Listen, Ecclesiastes says that, that God has written eternity on our hearts. Right, C.S. Lewis says that if there are these desires that we have that, that nothing in this world quite satisfies. Remember, we're always trying to satisfy all these desires and do all these different things. This will make me happy. This will make me happy. Now I'll be satisfied. Listen, if you get to the point where you realize that none of those things do it, it's pretty good evidence that there's something else out there that doesn't. And Jesus Christ says, I am that something. He says, I'm it. He says, all that other stuff that you're looking for, it all points to me. That's it. It is because of, of who he is. It is because of his authority shown to us this morning in his teaching and his casting out demons and his healings that demands a response from us. There's no one like Jesus in all of history. We've had thousands of years to create the best fictional characters that we could possibly dream of. And we haven't even come close to, to coming up with someone just close as good as Jesus. Did you read all of the articles last week? about how clear it was that they were trying to make Superman obviously like Jesus. But they were, even the non-Christians were complaining. Like, you didn't quite get it right because we can't. You can't match the story of Jesus. You can't match the story of the gospel because it's the best story ever told. Even Superman, as cool as Superman is, and I like Superman, but even Superman can't come close to comparing to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the point. He says, look at my authority. Look at me. I'm it. I am what you are looking for. And we all must do something with Jesus. Listen, pick us up. Either adore him or abhor him. But don't give me that kind of middle line garbage of, ah, oh, you know, I kind of like some parts of him. No, he doesn't allow that response. He doesn't allow, his authority, his person does not allow neutrality or apathy. You've got to pick us up. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Jesus Christ. I thank you for revealing him to us through it. Father, I thank you for sending us a perfect, sinless substitute. Uh, I thank you that Jesus came and lived in my place. He, he succeeded where I failed. And then he came and died the death that I was supposed to die so that I don't have to. Father, we thank you for the gospel. I pray that we would delight daily in the gospel. That we would be sustained and, and we would study and, and appreciate and love the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, make this a place that is about the gospel of Jesus. And I ask in your spirit right now, Father, that you would work in these people's hearts. Father, I, I can change no one's hearts. I, I can't save anyone. I have no power whatsoever to do that. 
But Father, you can and you do. And we ask that you would work um, this morning. Show us our sin and show us our need for a Savior, Father. And show us the glory of Jesus Christ. We thank you for this time. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.